0: Section 55 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lois and Charles C. Bombow Homicide, Part 32, Meyer, with many aliases, Part 2. About the end of December 1891, or the beginning of January 1892, the restless Meyer sought an interview with Muller, and renewed his importunities to become a Confederate in his scheme. He explained that before he went to Cologne, he had ensured the life of his docile and subservient tool Brandt, under the name of Baum, in four companies, for a total of $8,500. He admitted incidentally that in order to complete the first payments, he was obliged to borrow $70. The lender was his friend Gardner, with whom he afterward quarreled. He stated that his plan was to obtain a substitute from a hospital, someone who was nearing his end palm him off as Baum, and after his death, Mrs. Meyer, personating the wife of Baum, and as such, the beneficiary, would claim the insurance. More than that, she would eventually claim a share in the Cologne estate. Subsequent interviews and discussions of the project took place at a beer saloon in Randolph Street, as testified by a witness named Igidio. Several stratagems, in turn, were suggested, but Muller was not convinced of their feasibility and declined to join in undertaking them. Finally, he was persuaded to agree to the plan of substituting a moribund hospital patient in another city, and New York was suggested as a favorable field of operation. During the preparation for the execution of this artifice, the conspirators— as the evidence showed, had rehearsals of the parts they were to play. Brandt was taught to feign excessive nausea, the poor fool being under the impression that that was his part of the play, and that when the time came for a corpse, it would be provided. Mrs. Myers said to have exhibited considerable ability in her portrayal of typical widowhood, and in exemplifying her acting when— as the widow of Baum, she would appear before the insurance companies in the somber habiliments of mourning. In concurrence with the general plan, Meyer escorted his wife and Ludwig Brandt to the house of a minister in Chicago, and they were then and there married, as already noted, Mrs. Meyer assuming the name of Emily Rather. Meyer signed the certificate as a witness of the bigamous marriage under a fictitious name. Immediately after this comedy, arrangements were made to assign the policies on Brandt's life to the pretended wife. Brandt and Muller were to precede Meyer and the woman on the way to New York, and to pave the way in that city for the denouement. By this time, Meyer seems to have felt sufficiently sure of his control of Muller to unburden his purpose plainly, in handing him the railway tickets and money for preliminary expenses in New York, and in giving instructions, he said, in reference to Brandt, "'On the train, I want you to give him a certain preparation which I will hand you. I believe we might just as well do away with Brandt.' There was no uncertain sound about this. The inveigler had done his work so well that Muller by this time was virtually a particeps criminus.' Meyer wrote to a drugstore in Chicago and bought a package of tartarized antimony, tartar emetic, which he handed to Muller with instructions for its use. The latter asked what it was, and Meyer, in reply, gave the German name, Breck Weinstein, and said that if given in small doses, repeated according to his directions, it would produce a condition so closely resembling that of diarrhea or dysentery as to deceive the physician who would be called in attendance. He also gave Muller a bottle containing sulfate of morphia. Brandt and Muller left for New York February 25th. They hired unfurnished rooms at 320 East 13th Street and bought some scanty furniture. Brandt, under the name of Baum, addressed letters to the insurance companies announcing his change of residence in accordance with instructions before leaving Chicago. On the arrival of Meyer and his wife, March 4th, the woman saw at a glance that such forlorn lodgings did not comport with the presumable style of a gentleman who was paying for $8,500 of insurance. More furniture were therefore purchased. A piano was rented from Gordon Brother's and something in the way of home comfort and ornamentation added. About the 7th or 8th of March, they were ready to begin the dosing process. The coke conspirators went to an apothecary's in the neighborhood of 7th Avenue and 42nd Street, and on a prescription for Meyer, signed Otto C. Stern, M.D., obtained some Croton oil. Then followed the dismal story of torture— day by day of the poor victim, and his sufferings from chronic antimonial poisoning. A young medical practitioner, Dr. Minden, of St. Mark's Place, was called in to prescribe for what was alleged by the messenger to be dysentery. The symptoms apparently corroborated the statement, and Minden prescribed opium and bismuth and appropriate diet regarding it as a case of dysentery and not suspecting poisoning. The medicine was procured but was not given, while his food was impregnated with antimony. The fiend who administered it, being undisturbed by the terrible distress he was witnessing hour by hour, Brandt always believed that he would be brought back to good health by Dr. Meyer, after the deception of Dr. Minden had been carried to sufficient degree. Toward the 25th of March, Meyer became impatient of delay and concluded to finish his murderous work. On that day, he went to Jersey City and procured some arsenic, informing Muller on his return of what he had done and his purpose to substitute the arsenic and hurry up the job. On the night of the 30th, the wretched sufferer died. Dr. Minden was called in, and after examining the emaciated body, he gave the required certificate of death, in which the cause assigned was chronic dysentery. Curiously enough, Dr. Minden was somewhat of an expert in antimonial poisoning, as he had practiced among the lead workers of Colorado, but Dr. Meyer was skillful enough to deceive him. Two days after Brant's death, he was buried in Evergreen Cemetery. The pretended widow donned the sable garments of mourning, and after the funeral, notice was sent to the insurance companies. A representative of the Washington Life, Mr. Tierney, who was also a notary public, called to take the acknowledgments that were necessary and while completing the papers, his sympathies were so strongly aroused by manifestations of grief, desolation, and despair on the part of the afflicted widow that he soothed her with a promise to facilitate the collection of the money that was due to her. On the day appointed, the woman, heavily draped in solemn black, called at the office of the Washington Life in company with Muller, and after presenting evidence to justify the payment of the claim, a check for $3,000 was handed to her. Meyer was waiting outside, and in a few minutes the check was in his grasp. His wife endorsed it. They were identified at the bank by the complacent landlord of 320 East 13th Street, and the money was paid. On the next day, the same game was played at the Office of the New York Life, with the same result, a check for $1,000 being paid to the claimant. On the following day, the conspirators called at the Agency of the Etna Life. But there, instead of realizing the result of eight or nine months' preparation, they struck a snag. The check had not been forwarded by the company from its Hartford office, as the company at first suspected all was not regular owing to the occurrence of death so soon after insurance but the check was forwarded soon afterward they never called for that check the next day they presented themselves at the office of the mutual life insurance company and were introduced to the hospitable attentions of mr d g gillette a born detective and unsurpassed cross questioner what followed is thus told in Mr. McIntyre's address. The defendant introduced the co-defendant, Mrs. Meyer, as the wife of Gustav Baum. He said he had come there to help her. Mr. Gillette looked at him and said, Who are you? What relation do you bear to this woman? Defendant said, I am only a friend. What is your name? asked Gillette. He replied, "'My name is William Richter.' "'Where do you live?' said Gillette. "'I live in Cincinnati.' "'What street?' "'458 Main Street, in that city.' "'Write it down,' said Gillette, "'upon a piece of paper.' "'A piece of paper was handed to him, "'and he signed the name William Richter, "'and the address as that of 458 Main Street, Cincinnati.' "'Mr. Gillette then said to the woman,' "'Sign your name.' "'She signed the name of Amelia Baum. "'Where did you come from?' said Mr. Gillette. "'In the presence and hearing of this defendant, "'She said, "'I came from Denver, Colorado. "'I only married my husband on the 11th day of February, "'and here I am a widow in that short time. "'Well, tell me something about the people "'that you know in Denver, Colorado.' Tell me the name of a single soul that you know there, said Gillette. She stammered and hesitated, and said that she couldn't remember. Gillette said, Tell me the name of a single street in the city of Denver, Colorado. She couldn't tell the name of a single street. Gillette, looking at her and the defendant standing in close proximity to her, said, Madam, you say you were married on February 11th and this is the sixth or seventh of april why madam you are about to become a mother you are in an advanced state of pregnancy how do you account for that married but two or three months the defendant said something to her in german and she threw her two hands up and said my god i don't want anything more here take me out of this place mr gillette stopped her and said madam we suspect that this whole thing is a fraud. We know it is a fraud. And turning to this defendant said to him, This is a fraud and we know it. There has been a pretended death here. Or there has been a murder committed. We sent to Chicago and we found Brant's coat. In Brant's coat were found bills belonging to the notorious Dr. Meyer of Chicago. Looking sharply at this man, he said, do you know Dr. Meyer of Chicago, who has been engaged in innumerable swindles against insurance companies, who has twice been tried for murder in that city? At this, the defendant and his wife went out. They promised to call the next day. There was a check waiting for them in the agency of the Aetna Life Insurance Company. They never went to the Aetna Life Insurance Company to get that check for $1,000. Straightway, they made a contract with a small furniture dealer uptown to sell their furniture for $12, of which $4 was paid on that furniture and $8 was due on it. They never went to get the $8 that was due. There was a piano in that house, as I described to you, but they never went to Gordon Brothers to tell them to take the piano away. The piano was left there. They never went back to 320 East 13th Street in the city of New York. Meyer wrote to Mueller that the fraud was discovered, that the mutual life insurance company had got on to their scheme, and that he must skip out of the city of New York. Just before Mueller left the city, or rather just as soon as the policy was paid by the Washington Life, the defendant gave to Muller the sum of $750 as his part of the bargain and told him to go to Chicago, and that he would see him later, that he would communicate with him. Muller did go to Chicago. He went right out of town as soon as he got the $750. Meyer and his wife, instead of going back to the Mutual Life Insurance Company to collect the $3,500, or to the Aetna Life to collect the $1,000 due, took the first train to Chicago. While living in New York, it was his habit to wear a beard and to wear his hair long. Sometimes he wore a beaver hat, and sometimes a slouch hat, usually a long-tailed coat. When he reached Chicago, he immediately disguised himself, changing his appearance in every way. He altered his manner of dressing and shaved off his beard. He saw Muller and explained to him once more that the insurance people had got wind of his scheme. He kept himself secreted. He never went to his home at 331 Center Street, but instructed Muller to go there and sell his furniture. Muller went there under the name of Klein to get the furniture, sold it, and took the money thus realized and gave it to the defendant apprehensive that if he stayed in Chicago, he would be caught. He went to Detroit, Michigan. There he remained in concealment for a long period of time. Then he went to South Bend, Indiana, from there to Indianapolis, thence to Cincinnati, and subsequently went to Toledo, Ohio. In each of these places, he was known by a different name. In Toledo, he lived at 957 Daw Street and was known there, as Hugo Whaler, All these migrations, these flights from one city to another, were because he apprehended danger and felt that the sleuth hounds were after him. Seventy or eighty days after the burial of Brandt in Evergreen Cemetery, the coroner, at the instance of the Mutual Life Insurance Company of New York, directed the disinterment of the body. After the exhumation, the people who knew Brandt in life identified his remains. The physician who attended him, the undertaker that buried him, and others who knew Brandt in his lifetime, stood beside the emaciated corpse and recognized the features as those of Brandt. The body was taken from the coffin and laid upon a table. There were present the most scientific men that we have, the most thorough physiological chemists, the most accomplished physicians and pathologists. They were there on that occasion, and from that body they took the viscera, the lungs, the heart, the stomach, and the liver. They placed them in jars. They were taken to the laboratory and there analyzed. The evidence corroborates Muller when he testified that antimony and arsenic were administered. The evidence shows conclusively that the body of Ludwig Brandt was saturated and impregnated with arsenic and antimony from head to foot. The chemical analysis shows that there was antimony and arsenic in the muscles, in the brain, in the intestines, and in the heart. Arsenic and antimony were found in separate, distinct, and weighable quantities. Mr. H.G. Julian, special representative of the Mutual Life Insurance Company, is the man to whom the credit of finding Meyer belongs. He tells the story in the following interesting manner. After the company discovered that Grant had been murdered, I was ordered to locate Meyer and was given carte blanche and instructions not to return to the home office in New York until I could bring Meyer back with me. It took a year for the expert chemist to determine the poisons that were given, because antimony is so rarely used as a poison with murderous intent that all other tests were experimented with before antimony was finally thought of. It was, therefore, one year after his disappearance that I started after Meyer and found him in the unexpectedly short time of six weeks. My first move was to go to Chicago to obtain full history of Meyer and his fellow conspirators, and their victim, and to watch all the relatives of Meyer and Mrs. Meyer and all their former associates and haunts to discover some clue to their hiding place. A picture of Meyer was found in the rogues' gallery of the Pinkerton Detective Agency, and identified as the man who came into the New York office of Mutual Life. The mails were watched, and every dodge known to detectives was trying to entrap Meyer but his long experience in crime made him familiar with the ways of detectives, and he did not communicate with any of his old cronies and did not allow his wife to communicate with her relatives. I was about to follow false clues to Germany when I heard of poisoning operations in Toledo, Ohio, similar to those in the New York case, and when I showed Meyer's photograph there, it was fully identified. He had insured his wife's nurse girl, Mary Nice, in the equitable life of $5,000, representing her as his wife, and then convinced to poison her slowly. Carl Kerfel, alias Muller, Meyer's accomplice in the New York crime, visited Meyer, fell in love with the girl, noticed she was sickly, learned she was insured, told her Meyer was probably poisoning her and eloped with her. Meyer got another girl, Indiana Maggie, from Indianapolis in the place of the first and killed her. The equitable life discovered that the dead woman was not the one insured and declined to pay, whereupon Meyer skipped out again. To the police who were hunting Meyer for this last crime, it did not occur that the unknown man who eloped with Mary Nice "'might be an old crony of Meyer. "'I found that his description fitted the Carl Muller of New York, "'and I then located him by tracing Mary Nice through her relatives. "'I then had him watched and surrounded by Pinkerton detectives, "'and I set up a law office in Chicago, and, as a lawyer, "'I was introduced to Muller, "'and he finally told me of the Toledo crime, "'but not a word of the New York crime.' in which he was particeps criminis, Muller undoubtedly did not know Meyer's whereabouts at this time, but one day he received a letter from him at one of their old resorts, while in the company of a disguised Pinkerton detective. The latter reported Muller's agitation and the significant word or two that slipped from him. I then revealed myself partly and put the screws hard on Muller and forced him to tell me all he knew, and to assist me by keeping up the correspondence with Meyer under my direction. Muller could not tell from Meyer's letters where Meyer was, because the letter was careful to have them come indirectly, and through other hands, and not even written or signed by him. Muller helped me, under threat of punishment for other crimes, believing I only wanted Meyer for the Toledo crime, and also because Meyer tried to poison his mistress and did not divide the New York spoils fairly. Had Muller suspected that I was from New York, he would have told me nothing, being an accomplice of Meyer there, but would have avoided me. After long maneuvering, I finally traced Meyer to Detroit, the last place in the world that a man in his situation would think of resorting to, because Mary Nice in whose stead he killed the Indianapolis girl in Toledo, was insured through his instrumentality in the Equitable Life Office in Detroit. While his house was being watched by my Pinkerton assistants, I entered to look at rooms that were to rent, as advertised on a card in the window, and as soon as I saw him, I knew he was my man. I found there evidence that he and his wife were preparing another murder. As soon as Muller learned that Meyer was arrested for the New York crime, he realized that he had been fooled, and he skipped. But I had Pinkerton's shadows on him, and when ready, I took him from his hiding place to New York and made him and his wife witnesses against Meyer. Meyer was arrested July 12th. A requisition upon the governor of Michigan was promptly honored, and the manifold criminal was taken to New York by detective officers. The compromise verdict, which followed the second trial, as noted in this narrative, attracted comment which was anything but complimentary to the jury. It could only be regarded as one degree better than a disagreement. Recorder Smith, before whom the case was tried, declared that the crime was one of the most atrocious that ever came to his knowledge and that the verdict was clearly illogical, as the evidence warranted a verdict of murder in the first degree. End of Section 55